Welcome to part two of the One Sharp Sword interview with Stever Robbins. You've alluded to the coaching you do with private clients. You've mentioned that a few times. And um, I think that ties quite well to how you help people live extraordinary lives. And can we talk a little bit about that? It's quite a shift from, um, you know, the world of MIT or Harvard Business School and uh, <laughs> creating protocols for the internet that we all use every day. Um, it's, it's a big shift. So where, at what point in your life did you go, you know what, I know enough uh, like I, I've learned how to, I've learned, like I went to the psych department. I learned how to make friends. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I've learned enough how to live in the world. I've learned, uh, how to interact in the world. And now I want to help other people. Like, was that a, was that the shift or what, like, at what point did you go, I have to so use my, all, my talents for good, right? Like, yeah, that's that's a p. That's actually a big piece of it. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to warn everyone listening in advance. Um, doing this professionally is not only is new to the point of like just a few weeks old. Okay, so I want to be clear. I didn't make that any part of my professional identity. In fact, I still haven't changed my LinkedIn profile as of today. So you are the first person who is who is hearing of this as being my professional position. So I want to start with that. That's Second. Awesome. Congratulations. Seriously, that's a, it's a big declaration, Steve. This is, that's actually very big. And, and for you to say, I'm still sort of on the edge. I'm not sure how it looks or sounds or feels like I'm still getting fully acclimated to it. Awesome. Good for you. Love it. I well, celebrate I'm, I'm, I'm stepping into the, the shallow end of the pool because I'm not interested in being a traditional self-help person. My, my orientation as both a business person and as an engineer I think gives me a very, very different perspective. One which is which is less spiritually grounded, for example, and much more grounded in let's actually make this thing happen. Uh, I'll give you a, I'll give you a real life example. So one of my friends from Harvard Business School is now a CEO of a company that every single person watching or listening to this knows the company. Um, and he told me twelve years ago that he really wanted to write a children's book, and he told me about it. And he was the head. He was the CEO of this company at the time, right? And so every single time I've talked to him for the last 12 years, I have, even if I haven't said it out loud, I've been thinking, I want him to be able to write that children's book. I want, you know, that's this thing that was a dream of his that I want him to be able to do. And we talked about two weeks ago and I, I said, you know, um, I still want to get you to write that children's book. And you're in a position, if you need to, to hire a ghostwriter and an illustrator and all that stuff. And he said, Steve, stop. I'm like, what? He said, he said, I wanted to write a children's book because my kids were 12. My kids are now in their mid-20s. And he's like, I've, I've given them those lessons. I'm like, great. Then I can let go of that, of that thing. But I've done that my whole life. When people tell me about something they dream of doing, but they're not doing it. You know, any sentence that begins with someday I want to blank, or I thought my life would be more than this, or whatever, for some reason, that stuff just sticks in my mind and I never forget it until either the person tells me to forget it, um, or, or I can help them, or someone helps them. I don't, it doesn't have to be me, but 
but I want it to become true for them. Can, um, I, can I give you I a, a, a coaching piece of advice? Sure. They have to want it more than you want it for them. Yeah, but my brain isn't built that way. <laughs> um, so, you, so you can check in with them, which is what you did with your with your CEO friend, which is great. And and he was like, you know what? I checked that off my list. So you can check it off yours, which is great. But I think, yeah, keep checking because the someday thing is is so fascinating, right? When you work with clients and they go someday. And for me, I'm a little more blunt and I'm like, show me the calendar where, where you've got someday, like someday. So it's like, let's, let's plan it. If this is a thing you want, let's, let's put it on the calendar and let's, let's, let's plan how to get there. Right. I do something similar. I basically just say, okay, let's start today. And they look at me and they go, what? They're like, I need four degrees. I'm like, no, let's just start today and see. That's awesome. Um, You know, and again, I mean, clearly I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not obnoxious about it, but, but this and, and this is simply the way that I'm built. Okay. This is not something I learned. This is not something I decided. The way that I am built is when people express their deepest fears or desires to me, whether or not they do it explicitly, because the thing about being trained in NLP is learning how to listen to the people's underlying beliefs and, and things that underlie what they're saying, right? This is part of what makes me a good coach is I know how to ask really deep questions, yes. but I also just pick it up from casual conversation. You know, when I can, when I can sense that someone wants something, you know, sometimes I'll just come right out and I'll say, you know, it sure does sound like you're not really that psyched about the executive vice president position. It sounds like what you really want to do. This is a true story. It sounds like what you really want to do is go be a competitive surfer, you know, at which point they burst into tears. And I'm like, okay, you have to decide what your goal is. But, you know, um, so, so your question was, how did the journey? Happen? So yeah. number one, that's just for whatever reason, the way that I'm built, I'm always thinking about those and listen, those things and listening is for what are people's, you know, what do people really desire? Um, out of sheer intellectual curiosity, you've probably figured out I'm a reasonably intellectually curious person. When I turned the year that ended with zero, I, I got, a, it's got, well, it's just a number, except it's a number that I've been discriminated against both for being too young and for being too old in different contexts. So these days I, I just, you know, kind of, I, I was, I, I joined an acapella group at one point and they went to my Facebook profile and they saw that I was in my thirties and they called me up and said, sorry, we're rescinding our offer. And I said, what? And they said, yeah, we're a twenties group and you're in your thirties. And I was like, excuse me. Um, so that was the day that I went through and removed any identifying dates possible forever. But uh, that's all. That's awesome. That's all. Bizarre. Um, so wait, where was I? How did I get onto? Oh, right. I turned. Yes. And I said, people who are living amazing lives, I'm curious as to how they got there. Because a lot of the conventional wisdom that I was taught, like work hard and you'll get ahead, doesn't actually seem to work very well. So since I went to the two most prestigious institutions in their respective fields in the world, I figured if anyone should be having extraordinary lives, it would be the people I went to school with. And guess what? I had their phone numbers and their email addresses. So I just contacted them and I said, tell me where you are in life. Tell me about what you're doing and tell me what led you there. And there were a bunch of people who had absolutely mainstream lives, mainstream careers. They were happy with what they were doing. They were doing exactly what they had planned out at the age of 18, which was what their parents had told them to do and their society had told them to do. Mm. Great. They were happy, but that's not who I wanted to be. 
Cause I'm like, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm not that interested except when I'm acting, I'm not that interested in being given a script and just following the script until I die. That, that just, I don't know. That doesn't seem for me, it's not fulfilling for other people. It may be, but then yeah. again, remember yeah. I was raised in a traveling commune. So my idea of the script is real different from theirs, but the people who had lives that seemed to be extraordinary, which I really just define as being willing to step outside the script and do the things and build the life that you want, as opposed to the life that other people want for you. And by the way, that life might be, might look a lot like other people's. It might involve being an executive vice president. It might involve starting businesses, which, you know, most of my coaching has all been my, my over the way I market have marketed my coaching up until now has all been about executive coaching. Let me help you be a better business person. Um, you know, but, but so how did I make the transition? So what happened was that I was an executive coach. Uh, I've been since, since, uh, 1999. So long time now. And I really decided in many ways it wasn't fulfilling and satisfying for me. You know, after a certain amount of time, I just, I got tired of doing the same things over and over. I really didn't care for the marketing part of it very much because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I don't care about business, right? I'm the world's worst Harvard MBA. I just don't care about business. What I care about is human happiness. Nice. And, and in order for people to be happy, they have to have food and clothes. And it turns out that unless you're lucky enough to inherit, the only way to get food and clothes is by working for it. So I care about business insofar as business helps people have awesome lives. And in fact, this is one of the things when people say, oh, the economy is doing great. I'm like, who cares? Why should anyone care how the economy is doing if it's not benefiting them? You know, this is why I consider things like wealth and income inequality to be very, very deeply, deeply important issues. Because the only reason we have an economy is so that we can all have better lives. That's why we have it. And if we have an economy that is keeping half of our population so stressed they can barely function, it's not doing its job. You know, and and again, I'm an engineer. My thing is we need to fix it. And and to me, the end result, the goal that we're striving for with all of this stuff, with the business, with the engineering, with the technology, with the AI, with the Facebook. All of it is just around giving us better lives. That's it. That's the, that's the outcome. So I think it's very important to question everything and whether or not those things are contributing to that. And I don't just mean better lives for a small number of people. I, I'm a big fan of the um, John Rawls proposition about how we should judge the, the how we should construct um, systems to distribute the wealth that's created by society. And one of the things that one of the questions he grapples with is income inequality and wealth inequality. And that without having the ability for people to somehow accumulate extra wealth due to their own efforts, people aren't going to want to work. But yet, how do you also do that in a way that's fair and doesn't cause, you know, Elon Musk to be worth $300 billion while the bottom 55% of the American public is worth cumulatively zero? And his answer, which I think is a great one, is, and unfortunately, it's theoretical. I don't know what it looks like in practice. But the theoretical answer is we design an economic system where you are absolutely allowed to accumulate as much as you can accumulate with the provision that every mechanism you use to accumulate the money must raise the lot of the people at the very bottom of the economic heap in some fashion. So you can make money all you want as long as the way you make money is also improving the lives of the people who aren't you. And, and I'm like, that makes sense. So Jeff Bezos can make a billion dollars, not a problem. However, in order for him to morally make a, mil a billion dollars, he's got to do something that makes the people who work for him 
you know, better off. And this is one of the things I, I posted this on LinkedIn a, a couple months ago. I actually ran the numbers. And I said, you know, the interesting thing, Jeff, about I don't want to get into a whole finance discussion, but I'll give you the short version. Stock is valued, rule of thumb, stock is valued as a multiple of earnings, right? Earnings is how much the company has left over once they've paid things like salaries. And for most companies, salaries is the largest expense. So if you sit down and you look at the price multiple of Amazon, and you look at the average Amazon hourly wage for their hundreds of thousands of employees, and you say, if you raise the hourly wage by $1 an hour for 300,000 employees or whatever the number was, I don't remember the the specifics, right? That translates into a certain drop in earnings because those money, that money is, comes out of profits. That drop in earnings lowers the earnings number. And if you run that through the same multiple that Amazon has historically traded at, which is somewhere in the low 30s, if I remember correctly, that will tell you how much money Jeff Bezos personally makes or loses. And what you basically find out is that, you know, why is Jeff Bezos such a fan of, the, of $15 and now pushing up to 18 Because Jeff Bezos knows damn well that if the minimum wage is legislated at $20 an hour, he personally, personally will lose something like 20 to $30 billion. I don't remember the exact ratio. Like I said, if you go, go look at my LinkedIn feed, it's, it's buried somewhere in my activities. But, but people don't understand that kind of leverage. Jeff Bezos' personal net worth depends upon him holding wages as low as he possibly can. Mm. And when he raises them, he raises them as a preemptive strike against being legislated. Because if the legislation comes in, then they will almost certainly raise them more than he would. And if they do that, then he personally, right? And, and if you do all of that calculation, and if you say, let's just, let's just assign as a number, you know, $24 an hour or whatever it is that the, you know, that's considered a, an actual living wage where you could afford rent and food and save a little for retirement. And if you do the multiplication, you discover that Jeff Bezos's net worth drops dramatically. I don't, I don't even know if it drops. I mean, it may even drop to below being a billionaire. But again, we don't live in a John Rawlsian society. We live in our current society in which there is no requirement. You're listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with Dr. Wayne Purnell. How do you move from being an influencer to an outfluencer? How do you live a life of more significance? Go to Wayne Purnell dot com slash free for your complimentary copy of Dr. Purnell's number one best-selling book, The Significance Factor. Yes, you can get your free copy of The Significance Factor at www.waynepurnell.com slash free. waynepurnell.com slash free. And now, back to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with Dr. Wayne Purnell. Sorry. Okay. I want to get back. I want to get back on my story. I, 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 was, I was letting you go down this rabbit hole because it's, it's fascinating. And I was about to bring you back as well. So um, it's... The moral it's, of that rabbit hole, by the way, is yeah. learn how the world works. And when you're considering questions like income inequality, actually stop and figure out how the multiple works. Because, because 
you know, when people say, oh, Jeff Bezos made or, or Elon Musk made $300 billion. No, he didn't. His money all comes from owning stock. It doesn't come from what he was paid in wages. It's not even legal just about to pay that much in wages. So, so if you understand that the money comes from ownership and then you just go look and say, how is that asset valued? Just running that logic will tell you an awful lot about the motivations of the people involved. Okay, so back to my story. Well, that's, um, uh, that, that last sentence is really important, right? So paying attention to the motivations of the people involved, um, recognizing that, that uh, wealth you know, is we talked about working hard is not necessarily the way toward a specific definition of success. Um, that working in a specific and mostly strategic way is, and I think that's that's a huge piece of of personal happiness for so many people, right? To be able to leverage what's available to most people, even at a low level, when you start. Leverage is leverage, right? And so, I mean, I'm telling an engineer uh, about so leverage. Let me, let me give you let me give you the rules for success, real quick. Rule number one is that in our economy, you do not accumulate wealth except by owning wages. With with a very small number of exceptions, very few people are paid enough money to save up for retirement. You have to you make your money by owning things that compound, like stocks or real estate. Or, or owning a business, right? I mean, the reason that Elon Musk is so rich and Jeff Bezos is rich is because they own so much stock. It's not because of, their, of the day-to-day activities. The reason that Steve Jobs, who I would argue invented the home computer industry, um, took uh, invented the smartphone industry, took, um, uh, took uh, computer animation and put it on the map, and... Um, uh, there was another thing he did. Oh, and he also pioneered like actual subscription based uh, downloadable software. I mean, this man changed the world or, or changed the world through his vision and his execution capability. He created suites. Um, he created suites that were, that were inter... Uh, <laughs> By the way, most people don't know, but yeah. the World Wide Web was developed on a Next computer and Next was a computer that Steve Jobs created after he left Apple. So even, even the web owes its existence to Steve Jobs, right? <laughs> So how come when he died, Steve Jobs was worth one thirtieth of what Bill Gates was worth? And by the way, most of Steve Jobs' net worth was not in Apple stock. So I'm going to just leave that question there. If what we claim is that work and making a difference is how you get rich, I posit why I, I posit the Steve Jobs, Bill Gates question. And it's a, it's a simple answer which if you really think about it, you can figure it out. And I hope you will be as horrified by our economic system as I am by that answer. So, um, the, the, so if you the, want- The steps for success, own things that compound. Own things that compound. Uh, two is, I hate this, but this is the way our system works, period. The only way things compound is by taking money out of someone else's pocket. That's it. In, in, in our economic system, right? The, re, the only reason that stock is worth anything is because you're not paying your employees for the, full, for the full value you're actually creating. So I've heard a lot of people during COVID slam on landlords because they say, oh, all the landlord does is rent out a property. Well, number one, I happen to be a landlord. And if you think that's all a landlord does, you've never been a landlord because it's a pain in the butt. Um, but number two, well, that's all buying stock does. 
I mean, if you buy stock, the only reason your stock is worth something is because they're underpaying the employees to produce that earnings hit, which is then multiplied. And that's what gives your stock value. And to grow the value of the stock, you have to make sure that people's wages are not growing as fast as the, as the stock. Like, again, this is just the simple math of how these things work. So you need to understand that's how capitalism works, is it allocates the excess profits to the capitalists, which are the people who put the money in. That's that's the way the system is designed. And by this, the way, this is this is from someone who was raised in a traveling commune. Yeah, right. yeah. So <laughs> I'm biased in my perspective, but I'm yeah. also an engineer, and I just look at how the numbers multiple work. And I'm like, I'm like, show me someone who got rich some some other way. There, there. I'm sure there are a few of them, but but the people who have significant wealth all did it by buying an asset and renting the asset out or by buying an asset that is valued as what someone else did. Like one of the things that blows me away is um, when I hear conservatives bitch and moan and complain about a 3% raise in the income tax levels, right? People are like, oh my God, government's stealing our money. Every single transaction you make over the internet has 3% of it taken out by the credit card companies. Every one of them. And yet, and yet I never hear conservatives complaining about that. I'm like, look, what in the world? It, it costs a credit card company the tiniest fraction of a cent. And I mean, probably, it probably for a single transaction, you can't even measure how small it is. And it doesn't matter how big the numbers are. They do the same amount of work for a $100 million transaction as they do for a, a five cent transaction. So why should they get paid as a percentage of the size of the transaction? For historical reasons, and you know, one of the stories was, oh, we have to protect against fraud and all that stuff. Yeah, well, they've they've protected against fraud. If you look at when these rates were set, which was back in the sixties and seventies, and and the fraud levels, etc. You know, so so what we have here is we have a system where the people who make big bucks generally make it by taking a percentage of of the value created by someone else's work. That's just how it works. So the question you want to be asking yourself is. What can I do that will funnel either other people or technology labor, because technology is a device that, that saves this, into an amplifier effect for whatever it is that I'm doing? And one of the few ways you can do this without taking money out of someone else's pocket is things like creating online products, creating, creating experiences for people that can be automated either through video or through training other people to be facilitators, et cetera, et cetera. And that's you know, that, that's one of the reasons that I am drawn to those types of products, because I can be a coach and I can get paid for my coaching. And that is not a form of income that is, that is creating incentives elsewhere to keep other people's wages low. And I like that. Now, of course, the problem is there's also not the kind of leverage. If the only thing I did was coach and I didn't then invest that money in an asset, right. then, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have very much saved up. Um, well, that's yeah, right. Yeah. So that's a that's a huge concept, Steve. The the idea of in coaching, you're basically trading your time for other people's money. When you get other people's money, it's then up to you to leverage that, which means investing in something that compounds, right? So, um, and by the way, if you can get in on the on the bottom of a hockey stick where something is is really going to take off, that is one great way. I mean, that's how all the current billionaires made make their billions. Hard to predict that, right? Well, and that gets back to my original point of I've been with the companies that succeeded and I've been with the companies that failed. 
And from the inside, at least, I can't see any difference. Neither was smarter, whatever. It's just one happened to have the right idea at the right time. And the other one didn't. Yeah. But both of them believed they had the right idea at the right time. So, you know, they, to they say- both probably did. And yeah, and, and one had different circumstances. Connections count as well. So um, was I, there I, was there one more like you maybe said four points for success? Was uh, there? One more? I've already forgotten. But basically, it's 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 own things that generate income. Which, by the way, is not is a lesson that I resisted for years and years and years and years and years because I, you know, again, as you can tell, I have my hippie upbringing. I I don't I don't like that system, and I finally realized me sitting around complaining that I don't like the system is not actually making me rich, nor is it changing the system. <laughs> All it's doing is, is, is making me bitch. So I'm like, okay, I don't like the system, but that's the system. So, you know, I'm out there looking for leverage points myself. Um, but again, I, I, think I, that's, I think that's important, right? That you're, it, it's sort of like you've made a huge, almost anti-capitalism statement. And at the same time, you, you know, you can bounce back and go, and, you know, I'm looking for leverage points. I love that. I love that you can uh, sort of play in both worlds, you know? Let so. me, so I only recently heard a definition of, because people throw the word capitalism around, um, you know, very casually. And I've been searching for a definition that really captured it because I simultaneously believe that capitalism is one of the best systems ever developed in terms of it as an engine for growth and innovation. But it also very clearly has some very, very big problems. And Ray Dalio, who is a billionaire fund manager, and you know, again, fund managers make their money by taking a percentage of other people's money. That's the only way they have of making money. But um, Ray is a thoughtful and interesting guy, and uh, he's a middle-aged, rich white male, and that definitely covers his perspective. That definitely colors his perspective in ways that I find sometimes a little bit extra tone deaf. You know, he's like, he's like, just just tell your coworkers the truth about everything, and I'm like really, Ray? Like, have you ever actually worked for somebody else? Like maybe, maybe try being a black woman and telling your coworkers how you think they're doing a bad job and they really need to get their act together. You know, just to tell, tell that to your boss and let's, you know, let's just monitor for what happens. But in any event, um, uh, you know, and by the way, I'm thrilled that I have never been a black woman who told that to my boss, because I'm pretty sure I know what the outcome would be. And it would not be, it would not be deep appreciation. I'll put it that way. Yes. Um, so in any event, Ray Dalio, very brilliant guy, love a lot of his, his thinking and a lot of the work that he's done. And he posted a definition of capitalism recently. And I was like, yes, at last, it's a definition that captures what I think the essence is of why capitalism is such a great thing. He said, what capitalism is, it is the idea of pooling capital from individuals so that the resulting pool can be used to do things bigger and better and more dramatic than any one person could do. And we need capitalism to be able to do things like, I mean, we in the nonprofit, it's called taxes in the, in the, the for-profit sector, right? And we use that to build the interstate, right? Which there's no, there's no economic model that makes the interstate a worthwhile investment, but having invested it as a group, it's great. Same thing for businesses, right? Like, like we could never have produced, we could never produce a billion Gillette razors if one person had to fund the whole thing. We need to put lots of money together in order to do that. And sometimes we call the money debt and it's put together in some terms. Other times we call it equity. It's put together in other terms. So capitalism in terms of putting these, putting up together and aggregating money to do large things, 
love it. I think it's a fabulous, fabulous thing. There are two problems, there are two things that capitalism does not inherently address with that definition. And these two things are addressed differently in different versions of capitalism. One is the treatment of debt obligations. Um, I, I'm really not going to go into detail because I think we're supposed to be talking about extraordinary lives. And oh, yes, yeah, so I'm bringing you back to that. Yes, I am. Okay, but but so one is debt, which is that debt, I think, um, uh, debt has been turned into a tool for basic, for almost economic servitude, which mm. it has been in some cultures in the past. And then I think we went through a period where it wasn't. And anyone who has student loans that are not dischargeable by bankruptcy is currently experiencing that this literally is like a millstone around people's necks for their entire life. And I just think, I think that is number one, morally wrong. Uh, but number two, I think that even just from the point of view of if we're trying to architect a society that works for people, that's a ridiculous policy. We need to give people a way out of debt. And I think there's been a lot of research showing that it is, in fact, the ability of entrepreneurs and people to declare bankruptcy in America and to clear their debt scorecard. It is that that has enabled America to be much more innovative than other countries. And when you look at things like the non-bankruptcy, the non-bankruptcy available student debt, we're killing our, I mean, we're, we're, we're killing those individuals in terms of their economic productivity, but we're also killing what makes our society innovative and unique and differentiated from a lot of other societies. So that's one. And the other one is the wealth distribution of equity, because it is not the case that, you know, there's this whole thing about shareholder value. There's a book called The Myth of Shareholder Value that I recommend people read. Basically, this, this notion that shareholders should get everything first is bullshit. It's not law. It is not a requirement, but it's basically been a great PR campaign on the part of the people who are the shareholders to the point where it is now treated as gospel, taught in all the business schools, and that's how everyone manages their company. But it's, it's I think that the wealth distrib- the distribution of the gains of capitalism are very lumpy, and we don't have a good system for distributing them. So here I am. How's this for a segue back? Here I am working with people and marketing myself as a business coach. And and as I'm doing this, what I keep thinking in my brain is, but I don't care about business. See, full circle, all the way back to the exact phrase, right? But I don't care about business. What I care about is human happiness. And I got tired of coaching and have been looking for something different. To well do. done, by the way. Well, nicely, nicely brought back. That's awesome. It's called nested loops. It's an NLP technique. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, so I, um, uh, I'll skip over a lot of the irrelevant details. Just the, I decided that I was. I'm a, you're on the you're on the path of happiness, and you are you are building extraordinarily extraordinary lives. Yes. How did you get? There? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah yeah right. So um so when I was years old, I called all my friends and I said, "Is your life extraordinary? And if so, how did you get there? The ones who got there." got there, generally speaking, through luck or through some sudden dramatic change of circumstance that could not be predicted or planned for. So I designed a three-year experiment for myself with my coach. My coach, his name was Michael Neal. Um, I designed a three-year experiment to live with these different principles. And, you know, let me be very clear. Michael pounded me over the head with it. And he said, Steve, are you idiot? Just stop living your life the way you've been living them and live the way you've been living it. And what I found was in those three years, I started a podcast that became the number one business podcast in the world. I wrote a book. I helped co-found two companies. I co-wrote a musical. I learned how to perform. 
so I could perform the musical that I co-wrote. Um, and I think there were some other things in there. I forget what. Uh, but at the end of the three years, I looked back and I said, holy cow, that was that was extraordinary. And I was asked to do a TEDx talk about it, which unfortunately the video got destroyed. So you cannot see the original talk. This is one of the few few times in my professional career that I have actively wanted to take somebody um, uh, you know, and hang them in the in one of those stocks in the public square, you know, as an object of ridicule, because boy, was I pissed at the video getting destroyed. Um, but uh, in any event, I came up, I, I had a great presentation out of it, which I've now given a, an hour long version of it, you know, dozens of times. And really, the presentation just started as a story of my three year experiment. And I continued my coaching practice in business and executive coaching. Um, all the way up to about three months ago. Um, again, I'm going to skip over some intervening stuff. But three months ago, I said, you know what? I need to revamp the business. I need to do something. I, I need to be more focused. I want to have a strategy where I can now start to grow it and get leverage because I was realizing that just selling my time, I was not going to be able to get the level of leverage that I want in order to be able to save for retirement and all those things. So I did a little market research to say, I love helping people realize their full potential. Let me help people accelerate their careers. And I talked to a whole bunch of people about that. And the employees all said, if I need to accelerate my career, HR will do it for me. They'll tell me what classes to take. And I talked to the HR people and I said, career acceleration, what do you think? And they said, I, if somebody wants their career accelerated, they'll come to us and they'll figure out something. And we've got some programs that we license from someone. And so I went to some CEOs and I said, do you have high potential leaders that you really want developed and you want them to... Uh, you really want them to be able to get ahead quickly. And the CEO said, Oi, sounds like a great idea. Talk to HR. In other words, none of those people said, Oh my God, we need that. We need it now. It was a nice to have. So then I said, You know what? I really enjoy marketing, marketing communication, marketing concepts. Let me see if I can, maybe that's a viable next position. Talk to about a dozen people. And I found myself pulling back. And I realized that that a lot of what you need to be able to do in marketing these days on the internet and, and stuff, like it just it doesn't excite or interest me. Yeah. So then I said, "Holy shit, I don't know what I should do." And but I had one more phone call scheduled for the marketing research, and I called that person and I said, "Well, you know, let's talk about marketing." I didn't tell him that I was kind of already starting to eliminate this, and he said, "Stever." Um, We've only talked for five minutes. He said this, he interrupted me after five minutes, which as you can tell, you have to do sometimes. Um, and he said, Stever, um, you clearly aren't that psyched about this marketing thing. And when you told me your brief history, you've done so many different things. You were the poster child for having lived an extraordinary life. Why don't you help people do that? And this is the part I was going to apologize for <clears throat> before I went on this tangent, because I do have a tendency to burst into tears at this part of the story. Because what happened is I opened my mouth to tell him all of the reasons that living an extraordinary life was not a business I could be in, and I don't like the self-help market, and that's not the way that I work. And I opened my mouth, and instead of telling him all those reasons, I burst into tears. And the analytical part of my brain said two things. Number one is, Jesus freaking Christ, I am so analytical that I'm not even aware of my emotions. I have to burst into tears to notice that I feel strongly about something. And number two, it's, hey, I just burst into tears. That must mean I feel strongly about this. <laughs> So uh, that was about three weeks ago. And that was only three weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, and I've been talking to people and I've been running the idea by people. And of all of the ideas that I've had, this is the only one that I've had multiple people jump on and say, you know, I'd like to do a collaboration with you. 
maybe we can do a webcast together, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, to the extent that the universe gives people messages, which I don't really believe, but just in case it's true, it would be dumb not to listen to them. Um, the universe seems to be giving me messages that this is this is something I, you know, that that if at least I'll be happy if I lean into it. Hopefully think, it'll be profitable. I, I think, you know, here's the message. If if it's a cosmic message or universal message at all, it's that we as individuals are hungry to be extraordinary again. You know, I think that I think that the pandemic shut so much of who we are down that a lot of us lived in our space and that's it. And for so long, and when we go out, we are still masked at this point. And so we miss being extraordinary. We miss feeling extraordinary. And I think that if, if that's, even if that's the message, if it's not a personal message for Steve or do this, it's like, you well, may be the one to collect those messages and say, awesome, I've received all these messages. I am going to do something with it, right? And by the way, if I do do that and this becomes a gigantic empire, we're going to just go back and re-record this podcast to say that I, I correctly projected all of the market trends and I saw this coming years in advance. Um, I think it is but, a market trend. I mean, seriously, we are. What are we hungry for as a, a, a as individuals? What are we hungry for? And I, you know, that's a lot of. of well, well, by the way, we know we're hungry for meaning. People yes. want to feel like what they do is meaningful, and this this that's, actually has been known. That's for number why. one. That's number one on the Gallup polls, uh, year after year after year. Tell me, give me meaningful work, and number two is tell me. <laughs> that you've seen me like acknowledge the meaningful work I do. Right. Number five is salary. So like the top two things that we crave when we go to work are, I want it to be meaningful. And I think that's so important. Yeah. It, it, so, um, and I think it's so, it's so interesting. I parse it a little bit differently from you do regarding the pandemic. I think that to some degree we had gotten used to such mundane lives and used to putting up with them. Right. Even if we felt like things were meaningless, we we still put up with them because this is just the way we have to be. And by the way, let's Tolerance. be really, really Tolerance. right. Is yeah. two hundred years ago when you had to farm your own food, it may very well be that you just you just shut up and you knuckled under and you did what it took because otherwise you wouldn't survive. But we're not living in that world anymore. And and I think that one of the things the pandemic has done is is that it has simultaneously shut us up or, or shut us in the way you're describing. But I don't think it's that people are going, now that I've been shut in, I want to, boom, go back to the way things were, where I get to go to my meaningless job five days a week. No, nobody's, nobody's asking for that. Yeah. I think it's like a spring, that we compress the spring, and it, the spring doesn't just want to go back to where it was before. The spring wants to go kaboing, yes. and we want to go, you know what? Now that, I have, now that I have been so deeply shuttered in, I can see that my life as it was wasn't actually that great either. <laughs> so now I want something much more. And, you know, I, I mean, again, given the nature of our economy, I'm not at all sure that it's going to be provided for most people, but I, I, I am hoping people are hungry for it now. And again, you know, the truth is I didn't plan this timing wise. I encountered this myself and I'm saying, you know, I just, I can't show up and tell people how to make their business 10% more profitable anymore. I just, I don't care. I just don't care if their business is profitable. But what I do care about is whether there are 500 employees 
are coming to work happy, motivated, and if they were going to hit be hit by a car today, would they feel like my life has been a success? I, I, I mean, the the very first the way that I opened my living an extraordinary life talk is with a conversation with God, where God reveals the final exam for life, and the first question on the final exam for life, and this is in God's voice, is did you did you take the one life that I gave you and live it to have the most extraordinary, meaningful, amazing life, whatever that means to you? That's awesome. And, uh, and this was actually a real dream that I had um, that became part, part of the speech. And, um, and by the way, for God, you can substitute spirituality or you know whatever God of your choice. I'm personally an atheist, so I just kind of put all the gods in the picture at once. Um, but I think that's a fabulous question. And I think that at some level, a lot of people care about that question. Um, both young people, young people care, how can I have a fabulous life going forward? And what I've found when I've given, when I've done this as a speech, um, I also get a lot of older people and what they're looking for is affirmation that they've done that. Yes. They've shown up saying, I want to know, has my life, you know, have I done what I can? And if not, you know, I've only got 10 years left. So I want to, I want to jump into that and get on that real fast. Um, uh, so that's really how the, tra- how the transformation came about. It came about because I burst into tears. It came about first as an, as an engineering exercise to say, what were the things that led people, you know, what, what were the things that have led people to have extraordinary lives? And then the second piece of the, the second piece of the puzzle was doing the experiment, which again, still engineering. I was literally, this is engineering combined with NLP. I was literally saying, there is a belief system here. Apparently, the belief system is correlated with certain ways of being. Let me attempt belief system to find out if correlation holds. Boom, it held. And then combined with the, you know, then this next part is not engineering. This next part is just being frickingly dissociated from my emotions. (laughs) Then there was having this conversation and bursting into tears when I had the conversation and going, okay, am I going to keep pretending that I need to be, and this is the part where I said much earlier in our conversation, that even though I was freed from the constraints of the societal role expectations, after going to Harvard Business School, I have spent decades censoring what I do by thinking, well, you know, is this the right kind of opportunity that a Harvard MBA should be pursuing? I'm a Harvard MBA. I must work with CEOs in C-suites in the Fortune 500. Look at me. Do I look like the kind of person who works with Fortune 500 CEOs? I've never worked with any Fortune 500 CEO who didn't know me already anyway. So like, why don't I just drop the fiction of I have to fit into whatever this bizarre mental image is that I have of a Harvard CEO? It's letting go of all the shoulds. That's fabulous. Steven, we need to to bring this to a close at this point. there's so much more. I, you know, before we started recording, I had said I could probably talk to you all day. And, um, and unfortunately, we were coming to a place where, uh, where I've got other things coming up on my calendar. So, so. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. You know, from my original notes, I thought we were going to be discussing uh, what Burning Man can teach the rest of us about the creation of deliberate culture. So <laughs> let's, let's do another. I mean, this is awesome because here's what I'd love to do is first of all, how can people reach you? Like if, yeah, the, how do, how do people find more about you? Uh, you can find me at www.steverrobbins.com, which is my old coaching website. It does have a bunch of articles on it. Um, 
and it does have a contact form. So that's the that's one way to reach me. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm trying quite deliberately to up my presence on LinkedIn around whatever I end up doing it. Right now, I'm talking about entrepreneurship and things like that a lot, and I'm going to start weaving in extraordinary life. Uh, type topics as well. And with LinkedIn, you just go to linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Stever. I was early enough that I got just Stever as my. That's you know awesome. as, I'm saying, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, let me verify. You know what? If you search for Stever Robbins, there's only one of me in the world. So you'll find there, it. There really, there's, there really is only one. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah it, you know, we, uh, I was aiming for extraordinary lives, and and uh, we'll have to talk about Burning Man. <laughs> so. Burning Man, Burning Man is a key. Burning Man has been very important, very important for me because I didn't realize there were still venues where you could really step outside your societal role in a in a safe, supportive environment and really explore. And I think that the Burning Man culture. Forget the party scene. The party scene is interesting, but you can get that at Coachella. Um, the part of Burning Man that makes it magical is the community and the culture, which plays by different rules than our day-to-day lives. And I think the rules that Burning Man plays by are closer to the roots of how we evolved. Um, and this was not intentional on their part. I think it's pure coincidence. But it's very similar, I think, in, in the ways that our brains evolved. So when I go to Burning Man, when I come home, I feel this this extreme sense of jarringness because it's like, wait, I was just living the way that I was supposed to be living. And now I'm living in daily life. And you're like, you're like, Stever, shut up. Give people your contact information. We need to wrap this up. So www.steverrobbins.com. And, uh, and you can also find me on LinkedIn and, you know, feel free to reach out and I will, I will try to connect. <laughs> what a pleasure. Truly. What a pleasure. Stever, thank you for, for being here. This Absolutely. is. This is One Sharp Sword Cutting Through to What Matters Most. I am your host. I've had uh, Stever Robbins with me today. I'm your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the Breakthrough Success Coach and your Powerful Presence Mentor. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for listening to One Sharp Sword Cutting Through to What Matters Most without Fluxer, Dr. Wayne Purnell. For more information, please go to onesharpsword.com.